We have become, I think, a society very intolerant to negative emotion. We have been taught that we need to be happy at all the prix, time. Yeah. You know, like uh, at any cost. And we have social media that re accentuates that. Re -accentuates that. Because everything you see is only positive. positive. People are happy and they're posting about how yeah. happy they are and how. Ha no one is crying on Instagram. <laughs> no one's crying and how they have amazing relationships and yeah. like the husband is madly in love with them <laughs> and all of that. So you're constantly bombarded with that. So you have the inner pressure to always be happy, which is impossible. It's very performative, yeah. Welcome once again to The Lighthouse Conversations, a podcast featuring entrepreneurs and tastemakers from the world of art, culture, tech, and of course, food. I'm your host, Hesha Montasser, founder of The Lighthouse. You might remember us addressing mental health issues a couple of weeks ago in our special behind-the-scenes episode. In fact, with COVID-19, it does feel like people are more open to discussing their vulnerabilities and struggles with mental health. Now, this struggle is not something that started just because of COVID, and neither will it end with COVID. But the fact that these conversations are more open is definitely a positive takeaway. And that's the theme for today's episode with our guest, Dr. Karin Elchazen, a clinical psychologist with the American Center of Psychiatry and Neurology and VP of the Middle East Eating Disorders Association. I'll be talking to her about the impact of COVID-19 on us, as well as a deep dive into her area of expertise food disorders, and the associated mental health trends she sees in this part of the world. But we're starting with Lebanon. As you know, the explosion on August 4 continues to impact Beirut and the Lebanese people. And I was curious to get Dr. Karin's take, both as someone with close ties to the city, but also as a mental health practitioner. The situation, as you know, is extremely sad and difficult. I don't think it's the explosion per se. I think it's the accumulation of traumas. So I think since October of last year, uh, Lebanese people have been going through ongoing traumas. So first uh, there was the Thawra, and then after that the economic crisis, and then COVID, and then the explosion, and then COVID again. So I think they are really they're tired. They're tired. They're tired. And how resilient can you be when you're constantly bombarded with you know that one slap after the other? So I think, uh, I think in general, Lebanese people are very resilient 100%. Uh, uh, in general. But sometimes resilience can be bad because then you adapt to maybe um, abnormal situations and, and you take it as your, uh, your new normal. Uh, so this is, this is, I think, the, the, uh, the danger and where, and where we should be careful to use what happened in a positive way and not to adapt to it, but to read more as a drive for change. It's obviously a very complicated situation. So I, I, if, I'm, if I understand you correctly, one of the things you're saying is part of being so flexible and adaptive to situations means they're willing to settle for less. They could, they could adapt to a situation that's abnormal. This yeah, is part of resilience. You know, when you're resilient, you adapt to, to uh, difficult situations. And, and uh, I'm not saying it's happening, uh, but I'm saying th this, this could be the danger. So the idea now is, is uh, to move forward. And, and I, think, I think they are. I think they are coping in a positive way. I think they're very, very adamant at rebuilding. Yes. So you see all these youth on the streets, 
cleaning up and building and all those NGOs who are doing an incredible job on the ground. And I had a conversation last week when I was there with a fellow psychologist and I was and she, and she was telling me how difficult it is for a mental health professional to support others when you are going through your own trauma. And uh, and she was telling me the way I'm coping is to move forward. So all the plans that I had, the trainings, I'm 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 moving on. You know, I'm not saying this is the end. So I'm I'm continuing to look at the future and to build a future. So I think it's a nice coping mechanism to 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 keep going. So how are you coping? Because obviously, I mean, exactly to your point right now. I mean, you are a psychologist. You deal with patients all day, every day. But this is very close to your heart, as you said big part of your identity, clearly. So so first, uh, uh, just a disclaimer, uh, no matter how difficult it is to me, it, I cannot pretend it's clo- you know, anything close to what the Lebanese people are living because I'm not there and I have the privilege to be, of, of being safe in a, in a very uh, supportive country with an income, etc., sure. which a lot of people don't have. So, but you have family there. But of course, I'm extremely, I'm extremely attached to Lebanon and I'm very sad and, and I have all my families there, all my friends are there. And uh, since October of last year, this has been a difficult year for me uh, in general because I'm so close to Lebanon and everything that's happening there. Even though, as again, disclaimer, I cannot pretend to no, be no, affected as much as, as them. So I think uh, I, I think my coping mechanism is my routine is 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 to continue you know having a routine, um, exercising, working hours, a schedule. Even with COVID, all of that has been disrupted, and I tried as much as possible for me and my family to continue a normal routine of waking up, of exercising, of uh, ho- when homeschooling was there, homeschooling, then going to work and uh, trying to you know socialize remotely and uh, and then less remotely later on, so to continue a normal life as much as possible. Then I I use all the positive psychology uh, tools, which I find amazing. Like, uh, so when I wake up in the morning, I try not to grab my phone. We all try that. (laughs) I try to have five minutes where either I meditate or I do some gratitudes. Then um, if it's the day where I exercise, I try to straight go to exercising mildly. You know, exercise can be very positive. For me, it's very positive, but for people who struggle with exercise addiction, this is not something I would recommend. But with someone who doesn't have a problem, exercise is always positive because it, um, it does produce endorphins and it helps you, you know, be in the moment as well. Um, and, and maintaining, you know, very regular routines at home with mealtime, you know, with the kids, uh, sleeping time. We, we tried as much as possible to continue normal, uh, normal throughout this life period. throughout this period. And how did you explain this to them when, when the explosion happened? Obviously, you know, their family members could be exposed, to put it mildly. H- how, how would you explain to them as children? Because of various ages, obviously. Yes, of various ages. And the, and the tricky part was that I was going to, I was flying there a couple of days later. Right. I, I had to postpone after the, the explosion. So it was a very, very uh, intense moment at home where, because already prior to this explosion, I had an argument with my husband regarding me going. He didn't want me to go. And I was, uh, and, he, and we were like not fighting, but arguing around me going, not going. So basically when it happened, uh, him and the kids were like completely starting to yell at me and you want to go to Lebanon with the situation and crying and you're not allowed to go. And it was very, very, uh, very traumatic. So I calmed them down and I told them I'm not going to go now. And um, 
And then, uh, and then we sat and, and we started, I started explaining to them a bit Lebanon and, and you know, the situation and the historically and all of that. And, and we started to think how we can help. That's true. I think it's very important, uh, specifically for children, to feel that they, they are, can do something. They can do something, specifically from a distance. It can be very frustrating when you're far away. This is one of my biggest frustrations, not to be able to be on the ground helping with my tools. So I'm a psychologist. I'm trauma trained. I think I can have an added value, but I'm here, so I, sure. you know, I can't be everywhere. So, um, so my 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 eldest started posting on social media, you know, a lot on Lebanon, and she she felt. Her way of, it's her of way, posting NGOs, etc. Then we did um, boxes that we sent to Lebanon. So I, I got them to give stuff that they were not using anymore. Then I involved them in donations, things like that. So Do I they have cousins or friends their age that they at least your eldest that she connects with they have friends in Lebanon so they're getting feedback from their friends in Lebanon okay. and doing a, a good job at reposting everything that's happening until today my my daughter told me yesterday mom you're not posting uh, enough enough on Lebanon you know people are going to forget people should not forget so so uh, so so i think it's nice of, of her. So I, I try to involve them in everything I'm doing for for Lebanon, and I think they feel useful. And on that note, are there any, because we also get this question, and like our listeners to have the benefit if they want to help, are there particular um, NGOs or places that you can recommend to us for people that want to help, whether financially or in other ways? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think, uh, I mean, there are a lot of amazing NGOs, and if I don't mention them now, it doesn't mean they're sure. not good. But oh, we'll put it in the show notes, yeah. even if you remember a name later. The, the, first, the first thing to know is, is not to donate to the government and really to donate to NGOs, so non-governmental organizations. Sure. Lebanese Red Cross is always a good idea because they're doing an amazing job on the ground. Beit al-Baraka uh, was initially uh, an initiative to, uh, to help to, to open free supermarkets for elderly people who didn't have the means you know, to buy. So now they've expanded their work, they're rebuilding houses, and they're helping, uh, they're helping a lot. There is Offrejois also, who's working on the ground, Arc-en-Ciel also. Um, so yeah, there is a lot. There is Embrace, which is the, the, the suicide hotline, which is also an NGO doing a lot for, for mental health. So they're always in need of donations and volunteer psychologists who can give up their time. That's great. Um, that's very helpful. Thank you. You were a school, uh, school psychologist for a number of years, for about eight years in your previous life. So you have, and you still obviously through your practice, have a lot of interaction with children and parents that have to deal with children every day. And you are a parent of three yourself. I'm curious, and I'm a father myself of two children, especially during COVID. In some cases, you see signs that the child is not okay. But in many cases, they seem okay. And then parents were surprised to start seeing their kids, quote unquote, act up. And they don't know what to do. So I want to ask you first question is, uh, to tell us a little bit how you see how COVID has affected children. I'm obviously aware that Different ages will be different, so we're generalizing a little bit, but I want to get your opinion on this. And secondly, specifically for parents, uh, what are signs they should be looking out for where uh, the, the line moves from, I have to talk or spend more time to my, with my child, to I should give him professional help? It's a fine line, absolutely. So first, unfortunately, we do not know yet 
the effects of COVID on uh, children and adults because what we're seeing now is some effect, but I, I predict, unfortunately, that the, the mental health effects are going to be for years to come after COVID. And I think the post-COVID is going to be worse than the COVID. So I, I think from a mental health perspective, we are going to pay the price after. After. Because maybe now many of us are in this fight or flight mode. Yes. And that's going to go and then you're going to process. Yes. And I think the biggest, the biggest trigger now is for people in general is not knowing when this is going to end. Yes. Because, yeah. you, yeah, so this, this, this uncertainty creates a lot of anxiety. But I think that in the future we are going, and I always say, say that from, from the beginning, to pay the price of COVID-19 in terms of mental health for years to come after COVID-19, unfortunately. So can we classify this for at least most people as a trauma? Uh, yes, it is traumatic. And why is it traumatic? Because it, it hit the most important um, aspect of uh, humans, which is human interaction. So, so if you remember the, the longest study on happiness that Harvard Medical School did over 75 years, they found that the most important component was meaningful social relationships. So COVID-19 is changing that and is isolating us. And already before that, we were a bit isolated because of our devices and electronics. Now it's, it's, it, it took another, you know, dimension. So I think this is the biggest problem with COVID-19, not the anxiety linked to the disease or, or catching it or all of that. Okay, there's a bit of that, but it's mostly the disconnect. And as human beings, we are social animals. Zoom cannot replace it. I mean, it's better than nothing, fine, but it cannot replace it. And teens need this, this connection. The problem with homeschooling or distance learning, because it's different, is, is not the content of school. At, at school, it's not the academic content. This, you can get it. It's the whole socializing aspect. When you go to school, you learn social skills. You learn how to interact. You learn how to work uh, in a group. You, need, you learn how to be tolerant. You, need, you learn how to listen uh, to other people's opinions. And all of that is crucial uh, in personality building. That's why I don't believe that distance learning can ever replace not for now, you know, the, the, the proper school environment. So, uh, so I think this is the, the, the biggest problem with, uh, with COVID-19, though I, I, I don't argue with lockdowns or anything. I think sure. they were there for a reason. And social distancing is very important, you know, to, to, because we, we know nothing of this About pandemic, disease, right? Yeah. So uh, how do we know that the child is, uh, is, needs professional help or is just acting out? Because also, you know, what I'd like to say is that kids are very resilient, much more than adults, and they adapt to uh, difficult situations and a bit of hostile environments easier than us. They're more flexible, they're more elastic. Uh, so uh, it is normal for a child or a teen to, to react to a change in his life. So we don't jump and pathologize and say he has a mental health problem and he needs to see someone. It would be, I think it's more abnormal for a child not to react at all <laughs> uh, because that would mean that maybe he's suppressing something and something's not happening. So if, if a child is reacting as in maybe having a bit more anxiety or, or maybe... Withdrawing. Withdrawing, seen it with... uh, spending more time on uh, Right, on, so older children, I mean, my children are young, but... From friends that have older children, I heard a lot that, yeah, that already they're on devices, so they have kind of, that has gone higher. Yes. So all of that is, is unfortunately kind of normal. Of course, we, we should not 
give in to it and we should continue as parents our fight on anti-device as much as possible. But it's hard, right, when you're six months into it. But it's hard. And, and to your point, you don't know the ending point. So one thing is if I know, oh, you know what? It's, it's like, you know, I'm fasting and I know there's an end there's versus an, end. an indefinite uh, that's the issue. Yes, it's hard, and uh, and then it will create more, you know, arguments at home. But 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 we need to have the same speech. We need to have the speech that we want to talk to you. We want to be, you know, in interaction with you. We don't want you to be behind your device all the time. Now, when is the time to to seek professional help, whether for children, adults, or adolescents? It's the level of impairment. So really, when 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 the teen or the the child or the adult is not functioning well anymore, so when his daily life is impaired, so the sleep is impaired, the appetite is impaired, um, there is apathy, there is you know withdrawal, but complete withdrawal. Even the daily activities of maybe walking around the house or whatever, he doesn't want to do anymore. These are warning signals. Out. Yes, specifically if they are enduring. So if they if if they endure in time. Um, then, then definitely, this, this is the time where uh, you should seek help, because okay. uh, or a child who come who, who constantly complains, specifically for children more than for teens, of uh, physical pains, because uh, children don't have the capacity to verbalize the way teens or adults do, so they will have a, a tendency to translate everything in their bodies. So if you have constant uh, cr um, stomach cramps or pains or constant, you know, uh, headaches or things like that, this 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 is a sign to keep in, in mind. I had found in the earlier months of this that creating a semblance of a routine, even at home, was very important. As you said earlier, creating these... Uh, anchors. Anchors and kind of moments of tranquility of sorts, whether it's through meditation or breathing exercises, exercise, or all of the above. Um, and I have to say, at least personally, uh, a lot of these things, certainly the meditation, meditative aspect didn't come naturally to me. So I had to sort of push myself and practice. But as I did it, it became easier and easier and more and more, a bit like exercise, something I started looking forward to. Um, do you, would you prescribe generally as routine as a good thing to try yes, to... Yes, absolutely. I mean, any, any uh, positive psychology, any meditation, any breathing, it could be a couple, it could be praying for some people. Sure. Any, any moment during the day where you are with your own self, because we are bombarded all the time, you know, with, with our devices, we're no longer on our own. We're constantly in interaction. Again, doing it randomly won't work. The thing that will work is really to create a routine. It's just like exercise. It becomes ingrained in your system. You know, there's something called the neuroplasticity of the brain cells. When you, when you brush your teeth in the morning, you don't think about it. You just do it automatically. And so if you can try to put exercise and meditation, breathing in that kind of routine, it'll, it will be with time easier for you, for sure. And, and for children as well, um, I think um, to disconnect them from devices, you know, the good old board games, uh, are very helpful because it's a time where the, you know all the devices are away and you're you're talking with your child and you're playing a board game so there's no devices and it's a time where they're focused so it's it's mindfulness they're focused on In the way, game yes. family meals are crucial I can't you know stress okay. enough the importance of them so also it's a time where they're disconnected and they're and you're talking to you specifically with your teens it's a time where so much is happening and they want to tell you very little. So if there's no no connection, no no um, no place to, to to be able to communicate, uh, you most likely you won't know what's uh, what's happening. And this is when I mean it's not about 
being intrusive, but just keeping the communication lines open. So family meals, board games, uh, going for a walk all together, even if it's 10, 15 minutes, are, these are very good ways to, to keep the communication going. We'll be back to talk more about the side effects of the lockdowns and get into food disorders with Dr. Karin after the short break. Hey guys, if you want to know other ways you could contribute to the Lebanese people directly, you might also want to check out our episode with Zainad Dana. It was episode number 20 and there's a link in our show notes. And if you're tuning in from Dubai, you might have noticed the weather slowly cooling down. So we've opened our terrace at the Lighthouse in D3 for everyone who would like to enjoy a sunny breakfast or dinner al fresco with a Burj Khalifa view. Speaking of dinner, make use of our current promotion called Sail the Mediterranean. For 200 dirham, you'll get to have a starter, main and dessert with two alcoholic beverages. You can book a table directly on our Instagram or FB accounts. Welcome back. You're listening to the Lighthouse Conversations with Dr. Karin Al-Khazen. Before the break, I was speaking to her about the impact of COVID-19 on us as communities and how it has created a trauma that required professional mental health support in many cases. Because the impact goes beyond just the health cares or the general uncertainty. One example of an unexpected and unintended consequence of the lockdown period was the rise in cases of domestic violence. At the beginning, people were saying, that's great, now, now parents and kids will be together and uh, couples will be reunited because uh, parents can travel. But sometimes the equilibrium of a family is based on the parent traveling because the parent cannot cope with family life and has anger issues that are not resolved, not solved. So the way this family is surviving is basically because one of the two pa- parents not is not there. First, the family has to readjust. If they can readjust, the person who had the issues, maybe it's multiple persons or maybe it's the dynamic that's problematic, uh, is likely to result into problems. So so distance is not necessarily bad. Mm, In some ironically. cases, it's protective for the kids and for and for the other parent. So we've seen a lot of, uh, of uh, traumas now uh, arise from this proximity. But when you are undergoing a situation like that, it's very hard to, I mean, you're not obviously aware of the fact that that this is traumatic as you go on. From a kind of a personal experience, you know, 10 years ago or so, my mother passed away. And it was a very, very difficult for me personally. It was a year that was highly traumatic. She went in and out of treatment, etc., etc. During that period, I was just trying to cope. And obviously developed a number of probably destructive habits as coping mechanisms. But only many years later was I able to go and look back, realize the trauma involved, the traumatic events that happened, and trying to process it. I don't know if you take me back 10 years during that moment, during that year, when we were trying to keep her alive, essentially, whether I would have been able to embed you know, any, anything to, to, to deal with my trauma, if you see what I'm saying. Absolutely. The reason I'm, I'm using this example, because it's a very personal example for me, and I think about, I mean, I was lucky enough that during this period, it's not as traumatic as it is for others. Uh, luckily, although we all have our own sense of anxiety, but while you're in it, how do people, you know, deal with it and develop uh, coping mechanisms that are not destructive? It's very, very difficult to do. Two years from now, maybe they'll be able to come to you as a professional and say, you know what, it was a very difficult time. How can you help me? But as we speak today, what can they do? Uh, first, <laughs> the, the first thing I want to say is whatever anyone did to survive, respect. Even if it was destructive, 
That's great. It, it was just a way to survive. So even eating disorders, even addictions, and I'm, of course I'm not, you know, uh, encouraging no, anyone no, no. to go down that route. But uh, when patients come to me because they feel so judged, you know, that they've You're done this. Saying be gentle on yourself. Yeah, be gentle on yourself. Okay, that's you, a very important point. You were you were trying to find a solution. You you went to the wrong solution, which eventually made things worse for you. Yes. But initially, you were trying to find a solution. No one goes on an addiction path or an eating disorder. You know, one. Wanting to 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 consciously harm themselves, yeah. they're trying to find a solution and they're, they're trying, trying to, keep it, to stay afloat. And, and and some people are not equipped to you know at the time uh, to do differently. And this is the way they found to survive. So I think we need to to be gentle with ourselves and uh, as a society not to be you know not to judge people who did who had you know who went down that route i think it's very important there's a lot of stigma attached to those behaviors and i think it's important to always th remember that this was this was someone who was trying to cope he I did it the, the wrong way but he was trying to cope sure so uh, definitely the first thing I, I'd like to remind everyone is those those uh, quick fixes don't work in the long term uh, so, uh, you know, it numbs you, maybe it makes you, f you know, function for the time being, but eventually it's going it to come back, up with you. it catches up and it makes everything so much worse. Uh, we have become, I think, a society very intolerant to negative emotion. We have been taught that we need to be happy at All the prix. time. Yeah. You know, like uh, at any cost. And we have social media that re-accentuates that. Re because everything you see is only positive. positive. People are happy and they're posting about how yeah. happy they are and how... Uh, no one is crying on Instagram. <laughs> no one's crying and how they have amazing relationships and yeah. like the husband is madly in love with them <laughs> and all of that. So you're constantly bombarded with that. So you have the inner pressure to always be happy, which is impossible. It's very performative, yeah. It's impossible to be happy all the time. And in our human condition, we are bound to have negative emotion and we should not try to get rid of it because it, it historically kept us alive. If you didn't have the fight, flight, freeze, faint reaction, if you didn't have the anxiety that triggered those four, uh, you know, I'm giving just anxiety as no, an no, example, sure. uh, those four behaviors, those four reactions, our species would have been extinct. Yes. So clearly our negative emotions uh, tell us that something is wrong, that the that something needs to be changed, that, that, that you need to, you know, change something, maybe uh, have someone get out of your life or maybe change your behavior or maybe change something that you're doing that's not working for you in terms of your values. Your negative emotion always tell you something about your values. So instead of trying to get rid of them, and this is easier said than done, I'm still practicing today. All of us. All of us, but trying to accept that negative emotions are part of life and trying to build some tolerance to them and try to practice self-soothing things which are not going to be as effective as drinking or starving or binging or yeah. all of that in the short term, but at least that won't be destructive in the long term and that won't pull you away from your values. And I think that gets us to the core of, of your expertise, which is eating disorder. So obviously you've seen all sorts of cases over the years. This is something that's clearly misunderstood. The stigma there is maybe even higher than other mental diseases, Absolutely. right? So for some reason, people are willing to, I'm not saying tolerate, but maybe feel uh, less stigma with someone who is depressed or bipolar. Uh, but when it comes to disorders, especially food, this is highly stigmatized. It has been accentuated with social media, where today we have 
you know, from the snap uh, filters that beautify TikTok. women, TikTok, etc. So young women especially are especially vulnerable, men and women, of course, but I'm using uh, girls as I think it's an extremely vulnerable uh, segment because um, of, of the emphasis on how they look. Specifically in our region. Is, is it, so that was my first question. So is it more, do you see that more so here in our region than elsewhere in the world? I think eating disorders are a pandemic, you know. I, in, in general, the rates have been rising exponentially in the last 10 years. Maybe it has tripled. So, so. And sorry to drop to, and I, I read uh, in one of your interviews, you had said that the mortality rate with eating disorders higher than almost any other mental disease. Yes. That's something, can you... So in adults and adolescents, till, till last year, it was the f- number one cause of mortality. Globally or regionally? Globally, globally. So, so, so it, it's the deadliest of all mental health disorders. Now for adults this year, it came second after opioid consumption. So opioid... Um, it's mainly the US. Yes, mainly the US. But for adolescents, it's unfortunately still the number one cause of death. And it's the one specifically in our part of the world that's the most disregarded because it's a food issue. You know, so there's the whole th- thing about, you know, let her eat more or let her not eat. You know, it's like it's really it's really disregarded. It's not considered as a real disorder. And we struggle with families when they get to us to explain, you know, how deadly it can be and how impairing it is and how, you know, how important to treat it and to treat it early. Do they usually go together? In other words, if someone has an eating disorder, do you see cases where they are starving themselves and then binging or is it one or the other it can be the three okay. so you can be just uh, if you're anorexic uh, restricting type so you're it's just starving but eventually either you die or you start binging <laughs> to stay alive so you know we have a primitive bodies uh, one can if i mean if your body is normal at one point it will start asking for food and the food obsessions will will uh, will go towards binge eating uh, or uh, so mo- in most of the cases, eventually they start binge eating. Some of them start with starving and binging. And then you have a binge eating disorder where people just binge. Um, and you have bulimia nervosa where people try to get rid of what they have uh, binged Eaten. on in very unhealthy and ineffective ways that in fact don't uh, make them get rid of the calories and on the contrary turn their bodies into a fat making machine. And this is when they come for consultation when they start mm. gaining weight and they realize that what they're they doing what is, do. not, is, is not effective. Do you see more women than men? I see more women than men for sure, uh, which is in line with you know the world numbers. Okay. Uh, um, 95% of, of eating disorder sufferers are young women between the age of uh, 15 and 25. I suspect now that it's even younger because I'm seeing anorexic you know, p- people suffering from anorexia uh, as young as 11 years old, and I'm seeing a lot of them. And uh, also I'm seeing a rising number of men coming for treatment. I don't know if it's hitting men more or if the if there is more awareness on the uh, subject and and uh, and and people are more acceptant of of seeking help for a woman's disorder maybe it's that i suspect it's also linked to social media and also the objectification of men's bodies yeah. um I, I, there has been uh, quite a few studies showing you know how the the male ideal has evolved throughout the years and and how now it's this whole emphasis on muscle building so the, usually the presentation is different men want to be bulkier they want to be more muscly women want to be thinner, thinner. 
so men will enter eating disorders usually through going to the gym and uh, you know bulking up and and women through dieting usually um but in both cases you know the mortality rates in men are higher than women so, so what are steps that uh people can take i mean uh, for themselves i mean before they come and see someone like yourself as a professional are there certain warning signals that they're going to see and also i'm just curious when it comes to the second follow up question treatment is the treatment purely psychological yeah we don't have pills for eating disorders yeah so exactly so <laughs> so, so the treatment is mainly psychological but yeah. we do work with uh, so i run a multidisciplinary team uh, with specialized dietitians medical doctors and uh, psychiatrists because we, we we try to tackle the problem from all uh, all angles but the main treatment is psychological because eating disorders are cognitive and emotional disorders. And is it something people can do at home or they need to be seeing professionals? There are some self-help books depending on the on the severity of, of, yes. of the case and the presentation. So if you suffer from a mild, uh, newly developed binge eating disorder, there is a very good book called Overcoming Binge Eating from Christopher Fairburn, okay. which is step-by-step step and, this, and, and data, data has shown that it's, uh, it's quite effective for simple cases of binge eating. If someone is, uh, is struggling with anorexia nervosa and specifically if it's advanced, then definitely they need professional help. Now, as, uh, as a parent, when your child starts to you know, develop some signs or show some signs, I mean, maybe we can talk about what to do to, for your child to, yes. to try to prevent it, even though we know that today it's a, there's a very strong genetic component. With all mental issues or specifically sim- anorexia? Specifically anorexia, okay. Yes, but uh, to be on the safe side, a couple of advices, you know, as, uh, as families, I don't think anyone should ever diet. Uh, diets uh, don't work. They make you gain weight with time, uh, and they are the first trigger for eating disorders. There should not be an emphasis on physical appearance, on body image, on uh, good food, bad food. Food should not be demonized, and we should not label food. So, sorry, Karin, to interrupt you, but I just want to push back on this. Of course, that's even. But let's just take an example here. If at home we are not emphasizing, for example, issues of body image and so on and so forth. But their friends are on social media. They all are. They're getting likes, you know, because a girl or a, guy, a boy looks a certain way. How do we combat that? I mean, you tell them, you know, they all want to be liked. I mean, as teenagers, you know, it was, you know, back in the day, used to have, I don't know, a nice, the latest sneakers. They're all now doing this via social media. Very true. But what happens at home is the most important. Okay. So, so if, you, if at home you model a good body image, you don't talk about your body, you don't talk about dieting, you eat properly from everything with your children and you don't feel sad and you don't talk about the need to exercise mm. to compensate for what you have eaten, you don't comment on other people's bodies and you don't associate thinness with worth, then you're protecting your kids. Number two is to open the conversation about social media. I think parents should control their kids' social media. I might sound controversial and depending on the age, but you should know who your kid is following and what they're watching. Uh, There is a very, very uh, worrying pro-anorexic content on TikTok. So as parents, please be careful. <laughs> TikTok is really, you know, and we've... we've well, largely thanks to Trump, we might not have it in a few days, but uh, yes, that, go Maybe on. that's the positive <laughs> thing. Didn't mean to belittle it, but... Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, 
open discussion on on what they are looking at on on social media so uh, why is it so important to, to to have this type of body what does it mean what do they think that means you know so so it's important to to keep talking about those topics with them because as a parents you have the strongest you know you are the role model you are the reference and you have the strongest um, uh, input on your kids but do not confront them so it's not about being you know no you're wrong because specifically teens will do will will rebel uh, so uh, they will go and Absolutely. do the opposite of what you say so you have to be very gentle. you know gentle and know how to approach it in a non-judgmental way and and definitely you know by by making them think about what they're seeing and by educating them also i think media literacy is very important uh, educating them on photoshop on airbrushing uh, showing them dove does has a great content dove on yes on how dove images the soap maker. yes the soap okay. maker uh, they have uh, they have nice um, nice content online on uh, photoshop and airbrushing and real beauty and uh, so so Showing those videos to the, to the children can be very positive. Talking about it, educating them, telling them to go and research Photoshop and um, an airbrush, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. making them aware of the of the image manipulations. These are all very important things. I, just on the point that you made earlier about objectifying women, I mean, even as adults, a lot of women deal with that. I mean, I wanted to hear from you a little bit from your own personal experience. I mean, you've been a professional working pretty much all your adult life. You have three children. Have you? figured out a, um, a roadmap over the years? I think, uh, you know, objective... So I know it's a very complex subject. It's a very complex subject. So. It's a very complex subject and I have this comment, you know, when because I, most my patients have eating disorders, I'm mean, not most, but half of them at least, and I have a lot of teenagers, and when we talk, when we have those discussions about, you know, um, physical appearance and why it's so important, they, they tell me, but look at you, you, yes, you, gonna, you, know, you dress it's, up. It's exactly what I was going to ask. So there is, a, this is self-care. No, this 100%. Is self-care. So you get this, so you like, oh, but you don't have this problem, look at you. Yeah, so why you, you don't have this problem, but, but and, and you, you emphasize on your physical mm. appearance, you're always dressed up and you do your hair, and nah, nah, nah. so I explain this is, for me, this is my self-care. Mm. Uh, so th- th- this is uh, sh- showing respect to myself. This is not hiding behind uh, I'm not good enough I need to always be tiré à quatre épingles perfect no 100%. this is me taking care of myself in my hectic life this is the half an hour where I focus on me and I, I, I kind of treat myself yes. so, so, so this is not uh, this is your me time this is my me time this is kind of a meditation when I do my makeup it takes time and I have to focus and I don't think about anything else right. so, so we all you know find our, um, our ways so I mean to be a body positive activist uh, to be a, an eating disorders activist you don't need it, it's not about not caring about yourself on the contrary it's valuing yourself and caring about yourself but not being up obsessed and thinking that your value is only based on that. So if, if I want to talk about my self-esteem pie, physical appearance has a place there, but definitely the work I do with my patients has a much bigger place. Sure. And definitely the, uh, the, the type of mother I am with my children and how well they're doing or not has a huge impact on me. Physical appearance is a part, but it's not the, uh, definitely it's one of the smallest parts. Uh, so um, these are things I, I discuss openly with my patients when they do ask. Well, to your point earlier, right, if you're not doing this type of self-care and your own sort of psychological 
I'm going to call it treatment, but you know, how can you help others, right? It becomes... And I do therapy. I, I mean, I'm, I'm someone who, who received, uh, who, who underwent therapy. So I, I'm, I'm a big therapy believer. I believe in therapy. I, I did during my studies and then every 10 years I go and I, and I speak to someone and I have a supervisor. So I'm constantly also working on myself because I can't help anyone if I'm not in a good place myself. Yeah, I can't emphasize this enough. I mean, I am personally also a big fan of therapy and I have done my own therapy, especially since my parents' death and something I speak about openly. And I have found it uh, hugely positive uh, over the years. And one of the things that has helped me personally a lot is that I felt, uh, of course, you know, so two things. One is there's a bit of that stigma if you start doing therapy, even for many years, that all your problems are going away. Of course not. Of course not. <laughs> we don't have a magic wand. That's right. There's still some demons that you have to conquer on a daily basis. And new basis things that, uh, that, that come up. That life, come life up. throws things at yeah, you. Yeah, like COVID, like uh, Lebanese people and all the traumas they've had to live. No one you know, was expecting 100%. that. But what I did find, uh, the huge one of the main contributions for me, at least personally, has been the level of introspection. So when I look at myself, I think, I hope... <laughs> 10 years ago versus today, I feel that my level of inspection has gone up. Even when I make mistakes, by mistakes I mean if I treat someone in a way that I don't think I should have or made a mistake in human judgment error in my day-to-day life, I am far more aware of it than I used to. I also am more aware of my triggers, actions, things that I do, activities, and people that are around me, which is something I was completely unaware of in my teens and 20s and so on. Um, do you see that generally being? Yes, um, a- it's a, this is the, this is the most important part um, in therapy, specifically. You know, when you when you work in depth on your issues, the the whole idea is to gain is, is to gain insight into your own functioning, uh, how you're reacting to things, and eventually try to change. But already the level of awareness, if you have a good level of awareness, if you see what you're doing and you see what it's causing you and 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 you you know what are your triggers it's even if you don't change yet it's already huge and and it will you know it will definitely with time lead to a change in behavior and it will definitely lead in time to in protecting yourself so knowing where not to put yourself to avoid being triggered excellent thank you karin um i have one final question for you sure um Resources, where any resources, easy resources you can recommend by ways of apps, books, references for people that want to just start on that journey? Because I felt, again, from my personal experience, that not everyone is ready immediately to see a therapist. Some might want to explore themselves at home. Um, are there any particular books or apps that you would recommend? So first, I'd like to talk two, two minutes about our association, MIDA. Sure, please. Uh, it's a big resource for anyone in the region uh, suffering from an eating problem. What does problem. MIDA stand for? The Middle East Eating Disorders okay. Association. So you can find us online. It's an online platform. Sure. www.mida.me. Okay. And we'll you add can it to the show notes. contact us uh, through info. The, uh, Info at mida.me. Okay. Uh, so basically, uh, for anyone who has an eating problem or anyone who's caring for someone who has an eating problem, there's a lot of resources. There are, uh, we have a hotline. So if you send an email, someone, an expert will speak to you. Okay. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll, Thank you. we'll guide you. We, we offer 15 minutes free consultation online also to guide patients, etc. There's a lot of books. There's a lot of resources for parents, for carers. Is it anonymous? 
Okay. Completely anonymous. Yeah, um, so th this is one. Uh, in general, uh, again, all the the, the positive uh, psychology homework I think are, are are extremely good. So there's an app called the Five Minute Journal, which is um, like it forces you every morning to to write five things you feel grateful for and what you look forward to in life uh, today. I do three things. Uh, you no, can I, do I feel like now you make me feeling guilty because no, I, no. I need to go back and add two every it's going to be a problem things. please tell me three <laughs> it's amazing <laughs> and then five things what went well today also like you know be feeling, at the end of the day at the end of the day um, uh, what I did well today things like that I I I love the meditation apps. There's Head, Headspace, which is very good. There's a Calm, which has lots of, uh, specifically for sleep, they have sleep stories and things like that that can help sleep. Um, there is um, also, you know, if you have an eating problem, Overcoming Binge Eating is a very, very good book, even if you have anorexia, because it's going to give you general guidelines on, you know, the physiology of your body, etc., And uh, I can, you can put my email if anyone wants to contact yes. me for any uh, will, further That was my last question. Where to find you? Is it on email? What, how, what's the best way to find you? Is it on Twitter, yes, on email? Uh, on Twitter, I'm, um, my account is public, so, so people can follow okay. me on Twitter. My email, and I work okay. at the American Center for Psychiatry and Neurology. We hope to have Dr. Karine back soon to unpack more on mental health and disorders, as there's a lot more ground to cover. Thank you for joining us on the Lighthouse Conversations this week. I'm Hasha Montasser, and our producer is Chirac Desai. You can connect with us on Instagram at thelighthouse underscore AE. We love hearing from you. And if you want to check out older episodes, go to our website at thelighthouse.ae slash podcast. We'll see you in two weeks.